Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast series from Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew and today my co-host Paul Diggle and I are joined by Jonathan Hobbs to discuss developments in the crypto asset space. Jonathan is an analyst at Finimize where he specializes in crypto. He's written two books on the topic, The Crypto Portfolio and Digital Assets. John started out in the traditional finance world, but has also managed investments for a long, short crypto fund. So he is the ideal person to help us understand the important, but dare I say, complicated events that are going on in crypto at the moment. So John, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Luke. Good to be here. So the context for this conversation is the recent collapse of a large crypto asset project, crypto coin and a related stable coin. Uh, which is having large knock-on effects in the wider crypto market. Um, but we also wanted to use this opportunity today to not only talk about those developments, but also more generally about what's happening around crypto regulation, other crypto assets, and what this might mean for traditional finance and investors. But before we get into that, John, I think it would be really helpful to just start off with some quick uh, background questions to make sure we're all on the same page and understanding what I said can at times be a rather complicated market. So perhaps most fundamentally of all, why don't you start by explaining what even is a cryptocurrency or crypto asset? Yeah, so I think the best way to do that is to start off with the first one that was ever created uh, and then kind of branch off from there uh, and how things go. So, you know, Bitcoin was the first digital asset ever created, the first cryptocurrency. And simply put, Bitcoin is a payment system. So you can send Bitcoin from point A to point B, um, except it doesn't have to go through a bank. Uh, there's no middleman involved in the transaction. So if I send you money to your bank account, that's fine. Um, the banks will talk to each other and process it. Um, but the blockchain does the same thing, uh, except it doesn't have a bank in the middle. It's got miners who effectively work together to make sure that this transaction is validated and secured. Um, now, the way that works is with every blockchain, and I'm using Bitcoin as an example, but with every blockchain, you need to have something called consensus of the ledger. That is a public ledger that everyone can see. You can go to blockchain.com and look it up to see which address owns which coins. And to get that consensus, you've got these miners who are effectively competing with each other. Um, they're using mining software and, you know, in this case, a lot of electricity to solve these really complex cryptographic puzzles. Uh, and that updates the blockchain every 10 minutes. It updates the ledger. So you have this consensus uh, in return for doing that for their work. It's called proof of work. They receive new Bitcoins, um, which is how new coins are also created and brought into the supply um, for Bitcoin. The miners will also receive transaction fees and all of the transactions uh, you know, transaction fees of all the transactions that were in the block. So obviously technical stuff that we could go into and, and really deep dive, but we, obviously we don't have that much time. But the most important thing to realize with all crypto assets effectively and blockchains is that they use game theory to achieve consensus. Um, there's a number of ways you can do that, but the obvious thing is that you know, with Bitcoin, for example, to try and attack the blockchain, um, you'd have to have more mining resources and mining power than the entire blockchain or mining network combined, which is obviously very, very expensive. So it wouldn't make financial sense to try and attack it. It's much better to do what's better for everyone in the network by just mining the way the network intended. Um, so that's proof of work. You've then got proof of stake, which is slightly different, but it uses a different mechanism to achieve consensus where effectively you've got validators instead of miners and validators will basically uh, stake up their own crypto collateral uh, and in exchange they'll earn those fees and 
uh, new coins and they'll validate transactions. If they do it wrong, game theory comes into play again and they lose their stake. So it's all based on game theory and that's kind of how it works. Um, and that's the simplest, uh, you know, you have simple transactions where you're sending from point A to point B, but you can also get more complicated transactions, um, which is where Ethereum comes in, for example, uh, where you have smart contracts. Now, if you look at the ICO boom of 2017, where we're raising a lot of money, you know, for these initial coin offerings, uh, that all worked on Ethereum smart contracts. So effectively, uh, if I wanted to invest in token X, I would uh, send Ethereum to the smart contract address and a very complex deal would go down on the blockchain and I would then get sent back the token um, depending on the launch and all the conditions um, programmed to that. So obviously, you know, the, the market imploded, but it proved the concept that um, you could do these complex transactions on the blockchain. Fast forward to today, we are basically at a place where you have decentralized finance, which is a whole bunch of different financial transactions that are complicated. They can all be done with smart contracts. You also have uh, blockchain player in games, uh, minting and trading of NFTs, uh, as well as even buying and selling virtual land in the metaverse. So there's a lot of things, ways this has branched out um, through the technology, but of course it all started uh, with Bitcoin and blockchain. Thanks, John. I think that was a very helpful potted history of where sort of crypto emerged from and this idea of the blockchain as a database, a way of storing the history of transactions. But maybe just one other definitional issue that we should touch on is this idea of a stable coin, a sort of a specific type of crypto asset, cryptocurrency, because I think they're going to play quite an important part of the story we're going to tell about some of what's gone on recently. So could you just run us through what a stable coin is as well, please? Sure. So, I mean, a stable coin is essentially what it tries to do is have all the advantages of blockchain technology. Uh, so you can send it very quickly. It's permissionless, um, you know, low fees and all of that. And you can do cross-border payments very efficiently. Um, so all of the advantages of blockchain technology and then the other advantage, um, which it's supposed to have, is that uh, it trades one for one with the fiat currency. So as a payment system, it makes a lot of sense because if provided it's maintaining that same value, um, it is uh, a very good means of payment because there's all the efficiencies of blockchain, but yet it's still uh, stabilized to a fiat currency. Uh, you can send these across different blockchains. So, you know, I could send USDT Tether across the Ethereum blockchain um, and that would work just fine. Now, there's two different kinds of stable coins. The first is centralized stable coins. And the second is, which we'll talk a lot more about um, in probably the next question is algorithmic stable coins. So centralized stable coins uh, is just where you have a company that is responsible for backing the um, collateral behind the stable coins. Um, and they will make sure that that is pegged one-to-one -one with the dollar, for example. Um, they're also responsible for processing subscriptions and redemptions. So if an investor wants to, um, you know, trade in their stable coin and get back the equivalent amount of fiat currency, um, that company will be responsible for doing that. So for those you have, you know, think of your, your Tether USDT, uh, USDC and Binance coin or all the examples of those. Um, so that's the one type of stable coin. The other one is of course, algorithmic stable coins. Uh, now those are decentralized, which basically means that there's no central counterparty uh, controlling them. Um, so it's all done through, through the code. Um, and that uses some kind of mechanism or algorithm uh, to basically incentivize the market participants to keep the peg um, or to keep the value of the uh, the token pegged to a fiat currency. Uh, and that would be Terra USD, which we'll talk about. Uh, and just before we get to that, I mean, I think there's 
two types of risks associated with stable coins um, depending on which type they are obviously if it's a central a centralized stable coin you've got counterparty risk just like you would with uh, you know a bank for example holding funds um, but if it's an algorithmic stable coin you are looking at the risk of uh, the code not working as it should uh, or just the market generally yeah breaking down um, as we've seen thanks john so as you've alluded to there the um the biggest story in crypto right now as we record this in may is the collapse of one of these algorithmic stable coins terra um so this was meant to have a one-to-one peg with the dollar and it's collapsed to being worth a few a few cents could you give us a sense of one how important this stable coin terra was to the crypto space and then talk us through some of these quite complicated intricacies of why it is that this this utterly collapsed in value sure so i think the the reason it was so important is you know we've we've had algorithm algorithmic stable coins in crypto before and they've collapsed but the difference with this one which is terra luna uh, and ust um is the scale of it so the combined market value of luna uh, and UST, which was the stable coin, was around $60 billion, which is a lot of money. I mean, it's a, it's the same amount of money as Enron when it collapsed. So this is what really brought in a lot of media attention, uh, and it's been really bad for the overall market. Um, but there might be some silver linings at the end of it, which we can go into. But yeah, so basically, I mean, how it works is um, before I kind of explain the events that, that how it the way I, I see it, how it happened. Um, first, just a bit about Terra and how the blockchain works. So basically Terra, you know, as I talked before, it's, it's a blockchain uh, and it's trying to, or was trying to create a decentralized financial system where everything could effectively run on code without a financial middleman, like a bank in the middle, for example. Um, and this revolves around the idea of a, a decentralized algorithmic stablecoin. Uh, and it's got a few of them. It's got uh, the Korean one, um, the euro, um, but the one we'll focus on obviously is UST, which is the dollar one, um, which is the one that's collapsed uh, and gained all the attention. So the way it works is on Terra's blockchain, you've got two, two tokens. You've got the uh, UST, and that's backed by another token token called Luna. Uh, and the algorithm uses Luna to incentivize certain people to do certain things in order to maintain the um, the price at a dollar. Uh, and they, they're incentivized with profits. So basically how it works is Luna and UST work together to stabilize the peg. Um, when you increase the supply of one, you decrease the supply of other. And the supply of UST, uh, the stable coin is manipulated so that the price gets back to the dollar. So, you know, um, if UST is above a dollar, let's say, they will create more units of UST. They'll increase the supply. They'll bring it back to a dollar. Uh, but they, to do that, they'd have to decrease the supply of Luna so they would burn tokens and they'd get a fee in exchange. Um, UST, if it was below the dollar, which obviously happened, um, they'd burn more UST, bring the supply back, de- decrease the supply. Um, this They would then have to increase the supply of Luna. So that's how it works. Smart contracts work behind the background with that. There's also arbitrage. So if I wanted to buy a dollar's worth of Luna um, quickly, you know, if UST was trading at 98 cents, swap it for a two cents profit. So that's kind of the theory and how it was all supposed to work. Uh, it did work very effectively for, for a long time um, and it had gained a lot of confidence in the market. Hence it's high market cap of 20 billion or so um, before the collapse. Um, so what actually happened with the downfall of, of Terra and then UST and Luna, uh, there's lots of theories, um, but uh, you, if you read it, you'll, you'll see a lot of different theories that it's just the way the market works. Um, kind of like how George Soros broke the Bank of England um, um, back in the day. So 
looking at the events and what actually happened, um, here's how, how I see them. So it started off uh, at the beginning of this month in May. There is this uh, DeFi protocol, decentralized finance protocol called Anchor Protocol. And this is where everyone who had UST or most of them would go. They'd use this protocol. They would deposit UST and they'd earn a 20% um, yield on that uh, UST. So that's a really good yield. It got people into the protocol uh, as an introduction, but because of its high percentage, it's not that sustainable. Um, and the exchange itself, Anchor, um, started to worry that they wouldn't have enough cash to pay off those interest payments um, as they became due. Uh, so what they did is they decided to lower the interest rates uh, and make it more variable based on demand so that it would go down one and a half percent about every month. Um, and the idea was now that the interest rates have gone down, um, more people are going to leave the protocol and therefore uh, they would be able to afford the interest payments. Of course, that didn't actually happen. Um, what actually happened is more people flocked to the protocol and started um, depositing the UST uh, and earning that, that yield. Um, so that actually was a problem because they didn't have the uh, the the capital to pay off those interest payments. Now, if we were in a bull market, um, that would have been probably okay in terms of it wouldn't have caused a collapse because you wouldn't have had uh, the deposits would have been wouldn't have been affected. They just wouldn't have been able to pay back the interest. But obviously, we're not in a bull market. Uh, the market's very jittery right now. Everything's risk off. Um, stocks, crypto, you know, everything's been down. Um, so when the market got wind of this this incident with Anchor. Um, a lot of panic started to follow, um, particularly with you know Luna and whether it was able to back UST. So the drop in Luna's price, uh, you know, it causes investors to worry and, and so on. And you had this negative kind of sp spiral of events. Um, and then on the weekend, which is two weekends ago, um, a large investor sold $285 million worth of UST on another DeFi protocol. And that really kind of shocked the market and set set this whole thing off. Um, and then on Monday, uh, the following Monday, the Fed announced an interest rate hike. Uh, and that, then on that day, stocks, crypto, everything was down um, by a lot. Um, and Luna started to drop a lot too. And, and then you had this, basically it just escalated. So you ended up having this bank run effectively on Luna. Um, and to me, it was just a blend of, you know, market losing confidence in the peg uh, and how the events unfolded. So I suppose one, one thing that interests me in all that, John, is that you've used the words bank run, you've compared it to um, Soros and his, his attack on the Sterling's membership of the exchange rate me mechanism in 1992, the events around Black Wednesday. You also might draw parallels between um, terror losing its peg against the dollar and money market funds in 2008 breaking the buck um so these kind of these events happen before in finance but obviously in a new different way tied up with the um the way that the algorithmic stable coin did or, or didn't work but all those previous events were in different ways spurs for regulators to get more involved in finance do you think this um, collapse of stable of a stable coin is is also going to be a trigger for regulators to come into the crypto space and play a bigger role? Definitely. Um, you know, I think regulators have always been looking to regulate crypto, but they just move a lot slower. Um, but they are moving, and we just don't see it because most of it's in the background. 
But with what happened with Luna, I mean, you've already seen countries uh, calling for regulation of stablecoins. Uh, Janet Yellen made a statement they want something by the end of the year. Uh, but here in the UK, they actually want to include stablecoins as part of the financial services and markets bill. They've actually got quite a, a positive view on stablecoins in the UK. Um, they believe they have widespread benefits as a payment system, obviously provided they're stable. Um, so that bill doesn't actually include algorithmic stablecoins. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, the first, you know, which they've stated is it's just a lack of price stability, which makes a lot of sense. Um, but the second is I think it's very, it would be very, very difficult for them to regulate an algorithmic stablecoin because, I mean, how do you actually do it? Because there's no central counterparty to regulate. Um, it's all in the code. So they wouldn't have anyone to kind of uh, blame if things went wrong. And also... Um, for them to sign off on an algorithmic stablecoin, they would have to themselves look at the code and go, yeah, we think this is good enough. Um, we don't think it's going to break because we've looked at the code. Um, but of course, if it broke down, it's not going to look very good. So, you know, I see it as a big challenge in how they're go going to actually go about regulating algorithmic stablecoins. Um, I think they will eventually find a way, but it's going to be a challenge. Uh, but in terms of um, centralized stablecoins, so your tethers, uh, you know, all of those that are backed by a central counterparty, it's very, very easy to regulate because you've got one, one entity to regulate. Um, you, you, you've just got to look at their reserves, make sure they've got um, enough reserves to back, up, um, to back up the peg. And just as you would for a bank, for example, or, or anything like that. So I do see regulation coming, um, but it'll be probably centralized currencies first. And then you'll, they'll figure out a way to regulate the, the decentralized market. Broadening this conversation out a little bit, John, in terms of the wider crypto ecosystem, how do you see both A, that sort of increasing regulatory attention that you're just talking about there, and B, I suppose, the confident shock from observing a collapse like this playing out in the crypto market in general? Yeah, so I think um, regulation, it, it tends to scare the retail investors in crypto. But if you're an institutional investor, you're going to want regulation um, because obviously it's very, very important to have that. So, you know, I think long term, um, it's going to be good for the space to have regulation. It'll drive more institutional investors in. Uh, but in the short term, it could create a bit of volatility in the retail uh, market. Just in terms of how this collapsed of, as you described it, a top 10, very large crypto asset, the impact of that on in terms of people's confidence about crypto assets and broadly the way in which they're going to interact with other cryptocurrencies out there. Sure. So I think it's caused, obviously the market did drop along with Luna and UST and it, it definitely um, exacerbated the, the market panic that was already in play. Uh, but we are seeing some interesting things. You know, it's not all crypto to assets that are that have had the same amount of uh, issues and, and the market fears. Um, we are seeing some interesting things, for example, with uh, Bitcoin. If you look on chain and you look at the, um, basically you look at the blockchain and you can see who's buying Bitcoin and who's not buying Bitcoin. And what you have is uh, you can see that there's addresses which hold over 10,000 Bitcoin, which is about $300 million worth. Those addresses are actually are increasing. Um, there's more and more of them, and they've effectively increased by about 10% uh, since February as the market's been going down, and especially when this uh, collapse came along the lines of um, the terror, terror incident. Uh, you also see on the blockchain that you've got um, 
65% of all Bitcoin addresses haven't been, uh, or basically been dormant for a year, for over a year, which means they haven't been sold, um, which means people are just holding their, their Bitcoin and they have no intention of selling it uh, yet at these prices. Um, so on the one hand, you've got a lot of panic, a lot of uh, people have panicked, but you do have this long-term conviction, um, probably in Bitcoin mostly, the altcoin market's taken uh, a much bigger uh, a drop, I think. Um, and you've also seen a lot of leverage uh, being flushed out. So the derivatives market with, um, with Bitcoin, for example, the open interest, which is the amount of futures open interest, uh, that was very, very high before it dropped, uh, meaning there were a lot of speculators in the market. Uh, that's all come down a lot and been flushed a bit. Um, so, you know, the basic thing is you've seen a lot of speculators exit the market, and then you've seen a lot of convicted, mostly Bitcoin, you can see holders uh, who are kind of unfazed by the volatility and probably used to it by now uh, if they've been in the market for this long. In terms of that risk of sentiment, I mean, I wonder how much are we learning here about the way that crypto assets might perform in different market environments and therefore some of the diversification qualities that it might offer in that absolutely there is, as you say, specific crypto issues that are driving some of the panic at the moment, but there is this broader risk of sentiment across all asset markets. And one of the things that you might hope for from a diversifier is it does well when other things are doing badly. But precisely what we're seeing is that a lot of crypto assets seem to be doing badly at just the time when everything else does badly. So it seems to fail in that sense of diversification. And moreover, part of the reason that we're seeing this risk off sentiment is, of course, concerns about inflation and policy topics that we've discussed on this podcast many times. But one of the appeals of Bitcoin to some people and other cryptocurrencies is meant to be perhaps a hedge to inflation. So I wonder, isn't this exactly the kind of environment that we should be seeing cryptos and Bitcoin in particular doing better and the fact that we're not? What, what are we learning from that? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the inflation question, I, I would agree with you for Bitcoin and not so much some of the other cryptocurrencies. But um, I mean, the problem is we basically had this, as you say, this big risk of sentiment in the market, and that's driven by high interest rates. And what happens is investors just need cash. Uh, so they're selling everything they can. Um, it's not just stocks that have gone down. We've also seen bonds go down. We've seen a lot of uh, assets go down. And you have this market-wide sell-off where everything just gets highly correlated to the downside. Um, Bitcoin has gone down along with that. Uh, and crypto assets being a lot more risk uh, risky than Bitcoin, um, typically because they have much more volatility, have obviously dropped uh, a lot more um, with that too. So... Yeah, I mean, right now, in the short term, it, it seems that Bitcoin is not acting as an inflation hedge. Uh, but longer term, if you look at the underlying dynamics of how Bitcoin works and you take away the market, um, you know, the way the market thinks in the short term, which we've seen, uh, and you kind of think more longer term, um, if you just look at the supply dynamics of Bitcoin, there's only ever going to be 21 million coins. Um, only 90% of them or 90% of them have already been printed um, or mined. Um, and that is increasing at a decreasing rate. So effectively, you do have this fixed and finite supply. Um, so the scarcity element should come in uh, later on. Um, but I do think, you know, the market size of Bitcoin is very small compared to a lot of other assets. So it is going to be very, very volatile. Um, and it doesn't take a lot to 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 drop the price, um, given its kind of small market size. Jonathan Hobbs, crypto analyst at Finimize, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you to you to for listening to Macro Bytes. 
Um, don't forget to like or subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. But until next time, goodbye and good luck out there. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.